Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there. Welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lori Dickmeyer. I just finished speaking with Dr. John Wei about his new book, Queer Chinese Cultures and Mobilities. It came out this year, 2020, with Hong Kong University Press. This book is an exploration of queer Chinese culture and migrants and the broad social, political, and economic developments that are facing them in a changing China and world. This book is based on field work in China, in online gay communities, and also analyzes Chinese language films by queer filmmakers. It's also grounded in theory, and Wei's book develops intriguing new metaphors such as stretch kinship and gated communities, uh, which you will hear him explain momentarily. John Wei was a pleasure to speak with, and I hope you enjoy the interview and the book. Hello, welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies. I'm your host, Lori Dickmeyer. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. John Wei about his new book, Queer Chinese Cultures and Mobilities, Kinship, Migration, and Middle Classes. John, welcome to the show. Hello, Lori. Thank you for having me. Uh, So could you start us off just by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Hi. Hello, everyone. So my name is John, Dr. John Wei. I'm I'm a lecturer in sociology and gender studies at the University of Otago in New Zealand. Um, I'm the author of Queer Chinese Cultures and Mobilities, as Laurie just introduced. And um, it's, again, it's my pleasure to be here today. Fantastic. And could you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book? Right. So um, basically, I had my initial academic training in media and film, as well as culture and communication. So initially, I only set up to write about maybe queer films and videos. But very soon, you know, it extended to like digital, digital and traditional anthropologies, like in both online and urban queer communities, as well as sociologies of family and kinship, social classes and mobilities. Great. And could you tell us a little bit more about your research process? So you're saying that you did some work with film, some work with uh, also online communities and and other ones. So how did you go about your research for this project? Right. Um, frankly, I only had very limited time to do my field work, like literally on the ground. So that's why I added other methods like digital anthropology. So I could like spend a few years in a major online community to interact with people from much more diverse background. Right. So comparing to like, for example, doing my field work only in a small urban community in a major metropolis, um, so to speak, so which could be like quite limited. So in my book, I also added like uh, film analysis, social class analysis, media studies, and many other things. So at the end, it's kind of, you know, a quite hybrid methodology, so to speak. So the book includes many different aspects that I think will attract readers from different areas of study. Yeah, definitely. Um, And could you also tell us why you were interested in this topic of queer Chinese cultures and mobilities? 
Right. So that's a good one because I actually spent, you know, quite a long time, like, you know, um, in China's queer communities, like gay communities in different parts of the country, both online and on the ground. So I think maybe I, you know, because I was already familiar with the topic and it's quite an important issue, it's kind of at the forefront of the ongoing social changes, like in China, in many other Asian, you know, countries and societies as well. So, for example, if we think about the recent uh, same-sex marriage legislation in Taiwan and, you know, a recent one in Thailand as well, it's uh, civil uni in this case. So um, it's actually, actually at the forefront of the ongoing social changes. So that's why I was thinking maybe I should, you know, um, do a research on that and talk a little bit about that as well. So it's a combination of my personal experience and interest with the, you know, the ongoing issues currently, you know, that have become prominent in Asian societies and on the global, global stage as well. Yeah, and I can see that in your work. Uh, so why don't we start talking about some of the content of your book? So first off, in chapter one, stretch kinship. In this chapter, you introduce the common issue for queer people in China, that is that their sexuality is at odds with their family's expectation that they continue the family line by marrying and having children. (laughs) I wonder if you might tell us a little bit more about this and also um, some of the various coming out and kinship negotiation strategies you talk about in this chapter uh, and again, of course, this idea of stretched kinship you have. Okay. Um, yes. So it's actually not only in China. Um, my research process actually covers quite a few countries like in Asia and potentially extends to the migrant communities in other countries as well. Although I didn't have all the space, you know, to include everything in my book, right? So I think the changing kinship structure is quite common across those countries, you know, with a fast-growing economy as economic development often leads to increased mobility. So, and also it's not only about queer people, it's actually, you know, quite common among the young generations, probably beyond the queer communities in this case. But anyway, the queer China would be um, one of my major case studies here. So in my book, I talked about like things, you know, like coming out out as coming home, which is one of the earlier frameworks, you know, and strategies developed by researchers based on, you know, probably the data from the 1980s and 1990s. So in that kind of old framework, coming out as coming home, you know, it actually refers to a process, you know, for a person to bring back a same-sex partner as a good friend to the family, to their family of origin, so to speak. And this so-called good friend will just, you know, frequently stop by and join in like daily family activities from recreations to running the chores, for example. And gradually this good friend will be accepted as a family man- member, which often leads to the silent acceptance of the same-sex relationship by the family, even without a conspicuous coming out. So this kind of non-confrontational kind of strategy was understood as more suitable to Chinese cultures and many kind of Asian cultures in other parts of uh, Asia, basically, as it brings the uh, this kind of transgressive desire and sexualities into the register of the family and effectively avoids challenging the family, especially the parents, right, that may result in conflicts and rejection. But that's kind of, you know, coming out as coming home strategy no longer works in today's China and other like fast-growing economies. The social conditions have changed already. And the majority of young people today are working or studying in other parts of the country outside their hometown for better opportunities. And many of them probably only see their parents like, you know, maybe once a year during the, the Lunar New Year, for example. And the social condition for the old style coming out as coming home strategy just no longer exists. 
And, you know, as many people no longer stay very close to their families of origin anymore. So that's why we, you know, I argued basically that we really need a new framework. And I use a metaphor, a stretched metaphor, so, so to speak, to uh, kind of scrutinize the changing family and kinship structure. The kinship connection is stretched across time and space in this case, even during the homecoming process and family reunions, when many young people are still hiding it and won't disclose it, you know, their sexuality to their family. So it also needs the process, a process of constant negotiations and renegotiations to kind of balance and rebalance the stretched kinship connection. So it's kind of a resilient connection, but young people are often under the stress, you know, they're themselves stretched, you know, under the time constraint, in addition to the pressure of compulsory feminism and compulsory heterosexuality for traditional marriage. And another point, if I could continue for maybe just one minute. So another point is, is that, you know, even in people's own effort to build their own families, like their own homemaking process, it's often a kind of stretched process as well. And some of them just, you know, will just arrange a set of fake marriage, you know, so to speak. And some others may be, cho- you know, maybe choosing, a, you know, to get married overseas in other countries. And many of them, probably the majority of them will still just stay in the closet and marry the opposite sex. So all of this can be understood as kind of stretched kinship, whether it's home living, homecoming, or homemaking. So that's basically my argument and my framework of stretched kinship. Yeah, this is a really interesting metaphor that you uh, include throughout your book. Um, But in chapter two, you discuss this in terms of uh, Chinese language film by queer filmmakers. So you focus on Kit Hung and Scud. You say both represent their own life experiences as transnational queer migrants and filmmakers. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about how you see their films dealing with uh, these themes and with home, homemaking, homecoming? Yes. So I chose these films because they were like the like maybe autobiographies of the filmmakers, right? So and this newer generation, younger generation of queer filmmakers, they're quite different from their predecessors in the sense that there's themselves self-identified gay, you know, gay men and gay directors, for example. And also they grew up in a more like a more open and cosmopolitan time and space. So this newer and younger generation of queer filmmakers. And many of them also have had experience like living in other countries too, like in Europe and in Australia, as in the case studies in my book. So I actually use their perspectives in their own films to kind of complement, you know, um, the anthropological and sociological research I've included in my book. So I basically use these films um, as autobiographies, like I mentioned, to extend and expand the theory of stretched kinship and just say how that works in analyzing kind of transnational queer mobilities and queer kinship. And it actually worked great in my analysis. And again, because of my big um, background includes film studies, so it feels rather natural, you know, for me to to look at films, to result to films as you know another source of data or material, you know, another set of material to enrich, kind of enrich the analysis of you know in my book, in my study. And on that note, I really want to maybe recommend one of the films I analyzed in my book. It's called Permanent Residence. It's actually a Hong Kong queer film released in two thousand nine, and um, it's actually one of my favorites. You know, many pro- people probably don't know it, but it's really a good one. You know. So probably I can recommend that to our audiences. Oh, great. Um, so Permanent Residence, you said, was the film? Okay. 
I'll go out and watch that one. Uh, so if we move on a little bit to talk about your third chapter, you're bringing in uh, another framework to talk about queer mobilities. And that is uh, sinophone theory. So could, could you talk about uh, why you find uh, sinophone theories useful and maybe what are their limits for you as well? Right. So Sinophone theory is basically a response to uh, Anglophone and Francophone studies of global English language and French language cultures. So Sinophone in this case is basically the study of global Chinese language cultures and communities. So it's, uh, the concept itself is not new, but this uh, set of theories is basically a relatively new set of theories. You know, it has already kind of become quite prominent and popular in the field of Asian studies today. So I use this, I engage this uh, theory to potentially challenge the fascination with China itself in global Chinese language cultures and also connect China with other Sinophone societies in the um, in the big lands- landscape, so to speak. Right? So I frame this as uh, Sinophone mobilities to understand cultural flows and migrations beyond national and cultural boundaries. So although I also elaborated quite extensively in my book about the problems and shortcomings currently embedded in Sinophone theories and studies, right? So like, for example, like some early uh, Sinophone theorists may, you know, um, they probably tend to exclude exclude China from the conceptualization of the uh, the global Sinophone sphere, so to speak, which is quite limited in my view. And also the the um, the current kind of multi-generational formation, formation of Sinophone cultures and communities, you know, um, that is could be quite problematic for me as well. So, uh, for example, if you think about the the non-reproductive relationship between queer people. And, you know, if you think about that, it is going to be conceptually, you know, at odds with the multi-generational formation of Sinophone communities that takes generations, you know, to, to come together, basically. So that's just a, a conceptual kind of, you know, challenge, you know, I would pose in this case. And also, um, like, you know, the current concepts of queer Sinophone studies or queer Sinophone necessities, you know, which I really like, but also, you know, like I pointed out in my book, you know, that a minor to minor alliance between queer studies and Sinophone studies doesn't necessarily guarantee a stronger methodology. You know, a minor to minor alliance like this queer Sinophone studies, which is really great, but it could still be minor and marginalized if we didn't challenge the underlying social, social like structural issues as well. So that's kind of my understanding and reframing of Sinophone theories as Sinophone mobilities. Mm, very interesting. And in the same chapter, you present two fascinating case studies uh, to examine Sinophone mobilities. Uh, and you look at the migration story and cultural production of filmmaker T. Binyan from Malaysia and Two City Cafe, a Taiwanese cafe in Beijing. Could you maybe pick one of those and discuss how you see it as an example of Sinophone mobilities? Yes, and I can probably pick up the second example, second case study here, because uh, in a recent review of my book, the reviewer was actually quite interested in the case of queer Taiwanese cultural productions in China's own political center. You know, um, so frankly, I, I wasn't surprised in my own field work when I first discovered this, you know, um, that particular Taiwanese cafe, you know, early on in my research, because um, the time when I was doing my field research was also a time when the relationship between Taiwan and mainland China was quite, t- you know, quite tight, you know, um, 
probably from 2008, like until 2016, because of the change of leadership in Taiwan. So that's one of the reasons. So um, the, the two sides were, were like having a really good, you know, time, you know, in those maybe 80 years, so to speak. So that's the same time while I was doing my own field research for this book. So um, and in terms of sustainable mobilities in this case, both in a conceptual and practical sense, I mean, the flows of people and cultures I would say uh, I would really frame that as kind of empowering pro- process for different Xenophone societies to communicate, to interact with each other, to enhance the mutual understandings, so to speak. So although now it's much more difficult if you look at, look at that again, you know. So again, because of like maybe, um, you know, COVID-19 travel restric- restrictions and border closure, for example, as well as the ongoing geopolitical tensions. So now it's, you know, Xenophone mobility mobilities look quite different from the time when I was writing about that, you know. Currently, as we speak, for example, there's kind of military, you know, standoff and tensions between Taiwan and mainland China, which is still intensifying, which is quite concerning, to be honest. So the golden time or the golden age of central mobilities, you know, so to speak, that I talked about in my book has been kind of, you know, challenged by the current, you know, um, the COVID-19 crisis and also the geopolitical geopolitical situation that is still changing and developing. So that's probably Probably my current take at Center for Mobilities a while, you know, after the publication and the release of my book and research. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, all right, we're going to change gears a little bit and talk about uh, your next chapter, which introduces this term of suja or quality. Uh, could you tell us what this term is and how you see this type of thinking underlying online queer communities in China? Um, and what role has the your social media platform played on this. Uh, right. So, I mean, um, this concept of individual and population quality, so that probably that, uh, you know, um, what it means in English, right? So it was quite important in China. So I knew individual and population quality. And early researchers in queer agent studies picked up this concept and introduced it into the English language scholarship. I mean, for me, I'd rather argue, you know, at the current moment for kind of shift, you know, away from this term itself. Because today's like urban middle-class people like in China, they are a little bit reluctant to still use this term to judge other people's you know, private life, so to speak. So although the underlying structure of human capital and individual quality is still quite strong. So it actually shows up in other ways, like young people who like enthusiastically, you know, share their luxurious travel experience on social media and mobile dating apps as a way to, to kind of indicate their kind of social class status and social privilege rather than like resorting to the logic of individual quality as it used to be in the chi- in China in the past, right? So, um, Right, so that's probably my current take on, you know, on the concept of suji or quality, right? So, um, and in terms of the online um, queer social media platform, I mean, again, at this stage, I probably won't focus too much on the online community and social networking services like that, because, you know, um, they, they were quite, you know, prominent just a few years ago and quite, in, you know, would be quite an important part of queer people's social life. But it's, you know, all the online versions, online-based, you know, web-based communities, they're kind of declining and dying, you know, so to speak. And nowadays, it's all about like mobile dating apps, for example, so which I also talk about quite a lot, like in my book. So even the current geopolitical tensions around technologies between the US and China, so for example, it's partially about mobile social media applications like TikTok and Grindr. So Grindr is the most popular gay male mobile dating app 
and the U.S. government has already forced the sale of Grandeur from a Chinese company to a U.S. firm for national security reasons. So we can probably talk a little bit more about that next time. But again, overall, mobile technology and mobility would be the new frontier in our understandings and practice, you know, practices of gender and sexuality. So probably beyond, you know, the you know, currently, you know, already looking old, you know, a little bit older kind of online-based kind of communities and social networking services. Mm. Yeah, and you continue to discuss uh, these apps and online communities in your next chapter, along with physical places. Um, and you do this while you're discussing the metaphor of gated communities that you develop. Uh, so could you tell us what your metaphor is and how does it help think about online gated communities and also urban middle class communities? Right, because um, I probably really like, you know, to use, you know, different kinds of metaphors, right? I already had one on the uh, stretch, you know, uh, kingship structure. So I also really like the metaphor of gating and walling in this case, um, both in a physical sense, like gated and walled, you know, urban communities and residential blocks, for example, and also in a more kind of metaphorical kind of sense of form, you know, like queer communities gated and walled by economic and cultural capital. So for me, it's quite important that we kind of embrace the research, kind of research interest, you know, um, in recent scholarship in social class analysis and economic ana analysis, for example, which is quite an important intersectional approach in gender and sexuality studies. And, you know, but in this case, my social class analysis and the metaphor of gated communities actually differ a little bit from other approaches in queer studies. So like, um, first, I consider how the visibility and privilege of China's urban middle-class queer communities have further marginalized those with lower social socioeconomic status, for example. And also more important, I also consider the stratification within the so-called middle class. So the social class boundary is concretizing in China and parts of Asia. And even within this so-called middle class, you know, you can, you know, um, for example, the upper middle class and upper queer middle class people, they often enjoy much more privilege and visibility and other kind of, you know, resources and cap access to capital and credit, for example, than their like regular and lower middle class counterparts, so to speak. So that actually marks a very stark difference in the life outcomes of queer people you know, um, you know, fast-growing economy like China, like some other Asian countries as well. So um, in the final conclusion of my book, I actually called it a kind of gay meritocracy, so to speak, that queer people need to earn merits and social economic privilege as a way to survive when there is very limited social acceptance and no other protections for them in their own country, in their own society. So that's probably my take, you know, another metaphor, you know, on the issue of social stratification and also uh, social mobility and immobility in this case. Mm. Uh, and in this chapter, you also have a strong case study about a queer film club, uh, the oldest one, uh, the Fellowship of Tongzhe Film Lovers. Uh, could you explain how this illustrates this metaphor of gay Okay, for the um, film clubs, like queer film clubs, again, some of the um, the film clubs and um, social groups that are covered in my research, they either no longer exist or have been replaced by other or similar social gatherings or organizations. Because like running a film clubs or other kinds of queer social group could be, you know, a very long-term dedication, devotion, and commitment in this case. And the one uh, you mentioned here, the fellowship, um, you know, of Tongju film lovers, right? 
So that's probably the longest running queer film club in China. Um, that was probably, you know, um, I think it lasted for like eight years from 2008 to 2016, I think. So many, many smaller ones and other ones, probably they just lasted for a few years and then just disappeared because it's really difficult for the organizers to continue investing their time and the resources with actually very little social support and wider acknowledgement of what they do. So um, I talk a lot about these kind of social uh, groups, queer social groups in my book, because, you know, someone has to record that part of history and that part of the community that are really, really important and crucial for local queer people, right? So if we didn't include, if we didn't include this in our research, then very few people will remember the value of their work. So that's part of my argument as well, because it's quite important for the well-being of average queer people in the local communities. But on the other hand, as you mentioned, because we talked about the metaphor of gated community of social stratification within and across different social classes. So on the other hand, I argued in my book that queer social groups like film clubs, like the fellowship, I mean, um, you know, these social groups themselves can be gated communities, separated and segregated by cultural tastes and cultural capital. And the membership in these kind of communities is often limited to relatively to those who are relatively you know socially successful, right? Like urban residents, urban migrants who often have a university education, and all of these are highly relevant to today today's social inequality and social distinctions, you know, along the line of social class boundaries, which have been reproduced kind of within today's queer communities. So that's probably my um, argument and case study, you know, in that part in that chapter of my book. Very good. Uh, in your final chapter, closing remarks, you discuss and reflect on the main theme of your book again. Uh, in some cases, weaving in some new information and personal anecdotes. Uh, and your final section is called "For a Queer Future," and it raises the dual pressures for queer people in China: familial pressures and compulsory development. And you pose this question: Can we still talk about hope and remain? Future uh, is that possible to locate a security uh, not only within but beyond familialism and development? Uh, how would you answer that question now? Well, um, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Right. So, um, so at the moment, my answer is no. Uh, it's probably still not because you know, um, currently we're still under the you know a once in a century kind of pandemic, and many people believe that the the full social and economic impact hasn't started to show. So, as I mentioned, the geopolitical geopolitical tensions, you know, they're also rising and intensifying, you know, concerning China in particular. So now it's really really such a difficult time to talk about the future, right? So I think you know, um, we we all understand that. So a, a queer future will be really fascinating you know, where everyone just can enjoy different possibilities in gender and sexuality. But on the other hand, you know, it's a little bit utopian, so to speak. And some people even call it maybe a little bit nihilist as well. So it is kind of, you know, a, a kind of intellectual emancipation that I put at the end of my book as a way to, to provoke further discussions, to, to actively imagine, you know, probably a better tomorrow beyond the current limited like queer politics and geopolitics as well. But now at this moment, you know, um, in our current time and crisis, I think it's more important than ever 
to connect that kind of you know um you know active you know um you know imag imag imagination or intellectual emancipation with the uh, the lived experience and material reality of our time and current crisis you know which will have a long and lasting impact on not only queer people and social minor minorities but also the wider society so at this stage at this moment i mean in our current time and at and the current and ongoing crisis i would just say it's it's difficult to predict the future we can remain hopeful but we have to be you know down to earth as well in our approach, in our understandings and practice, practices of gender and sexuality, for example. Is there anything else you'd like to add about your book and let listeners know about your book? Well, um, I think my book is actually just a beginning, not an end, you know, both for me, for myself and for other researchers to look at queer issues and ongoing social transformations in a global context. I mean, again, in light of the current economic and public health crisis, I mean, it's time to maybe start, you know, thinking about, you know, probably the economy, the social class, you know, social class inequality, maybe as well as the aging population, the public health crisis, and the distribution and supply of essential medication, for example. I mean, all of these are highly relevant to our current time, you know, and these all have a major impact on minority groups as well. So, of course, I wasn't expecting the pandemic when I was writing my book and doing my research. But I think my book is a good start, you know, in the right direction, you know. And another reviewer of my book actually focuses on the value and the potential, you know, of, you know, studying queer issues as a critique of the, you know, economy, of social classes and other wider and deeper social structures, which will be crucial and very important under and after the COVID-19 crisis. So probably that's the last bit, you know, I can add to my, you know, to the interview, to my answers. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Uh, so, John, we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, so I don't want to monopolize it too much. Uh, but I have one final question for you, which is, what are you working on now? Okay, so um, I'm actually working on quite a few different things. Like, you know, for example, I'm still trying to further develop the uh, framework of stretched kingship so it can account for the, the, you know, a wider and broader range of lived experiences and relevant social conditions that I might have overlooked a little bit in my book. For example, you know, while I was developing that framework in my book, I did that, you know, almost exclu exclusively from the perspective of young queer people. But in kinship connections on negotiations, there must be another side that would be their parents and families of origin. So their experience could be a stretched experience as well. And the structure, the kinship structure from their perspective could be a stretched structure as well. So that's why I'm trying to kind of make it up, so to speak, you know, just to, you know, to, you know, to make up for the things, you know, I overlooked, you know, um, you know, in my book, in the original research. So that's one of the things I'm working on at the moment. And I'm also trying to like, um, maybe, um, you know, to look at and to research like coming out videos on YouTube, for example, which turns out to be a very interesting topic indeed. And I'm considering other queer issues and maybe um, in the current geopolitical tensions between China and the US, for example, under and after the COVID-19 pandemic, that would be something really interesting I'm exploring as well. And maybe there are going to be other projects that I'm, you know, still, you know, um, you know, I'm trying to start and trying to, you know, um, figure out what the best way to proceed, you know, because um, again, because of the current travel restrictions and border closures caused by the pandemic. So, but one of them may be, you know, may become maybe even another book, another project in the near future. So yeah, lots of things are happening and going on at the moment. <laughs> Definitely. That's great. I hope we can have you on again to talk about some of these. Uh, great. Happy to.
<laughs> okay, so John, thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it, and goodbye. Thank you so much, Laurie. Thank you. Bye-bye.